Okay. Have you found Mark 1 yet? Um, you've heard from me. You've now heard from Sam and the leadership as to the direction that Crestwell will be taking the next couple of months. And now we turn to God's word and we hear from him. This is why we're here this morning. This is why we've gathered to hear God's word. Mark 1. I'm going to read from verses 29 down to the end of the chapter, verse 45. This is the word of the Lord. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up and the fever left her and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because he knew them. And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon... And those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I might preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded, for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it, and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town. But was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. I want to take a moment and just pray, and uh, pray specifically for the McDonald family. Some of you may have gotten the emails on the prayer chain hearing that uh, Martin McDonald was taken to the hospital Friday night, and he did pass away Friday night. Um, So we want to pray for... Uh, for his sons, their four sons, their families, for the grandchildren, for their whole family. So let's just take a moment to, to pray for them and to pray for us as we study God's word. Father, we thank you once again that we can come before you. We are grateful for this opportunity to come to you in prayer, that coming to you three, four, five times in half an hour is not a waste of time, that being in your presence through prayer is worthwhile. We think of our friends, our family, the McDonald family. We think of uh, the four sons that have to deal with losing a father. We pray for comfort. We pray for peace. We pray for you to be their God in this time. We pray that you would show up in a powerful way, that you would impact their hearts by giving them peace. We thank you for the life and testimony that Martin McDonald was. We thank you that even though he had 
health and physical problems and issues for many, many years. His faith never wavered. His trust in you was never shaken. That although his physical health continued to decline, his spiritual health seemed to grow and increase. We praise you for his life and we thank you now and rejoice that he is now in your presence, free from all pain and sickness and sadness, that he is in the presence of his Savior. Lord, now that as we come to your word, we pray that you would be with us, that you'd help us to see what Martin sees now more clearly than he has ever seen before. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So Mark is um, typical. What we see in Mark is Mark just kind of moves from one thing to the next immediately, then right after. He just continually moves from kind of scene to scene to scene, just one thing after the other. And again, we pick up in verse 29, and he's doing the same thing, and immediately he left the synagogue. He's just, he's not giving us a whole lot of details about what's going on. He just gives us the short little snippet. So immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Well, remember that he was in the synagogue and he was teaching, and he was teaching with an authority that the people had never seen before. And while he was in the synagogue, uh, a man with an unclean spirit came in, and Jesus cast out this unclean spirit. He rebuked him, said, be silent and come out of him. And what we saw was on the basis of the authority that Jesus holds within himself and within himself alone, he casts out this unclean spirit. And his fame spreads everywhere. People go out and they start talking about what Jesus has done. And we're told immediately after that, he left the synagogue, which was on the Sabbath day. This is something that Mark kind of skips over. Jesus is in the synagogue on the Sabbath day teaching, and he heals, he casts out a demon on the Sabbath day. This won't become an issue until chapter 3. We're kind of jumping ahead here, but in chapter 3, the Pharisees will come to Jesus and they're, they're standing before Jesus and this man with a, a shriveled hand, a withered hand, we're not quite sure exactly what shriveled or withered means, but something's wrong with his hand and they will stare at Jesus and they'll wait and see, is Jesus going to heal on the Sabbath? Is he going to break our Sabbath code, our Sabbath law? And it's not an issue here, but we should keep in mind that what Jesus has done is he's just healed on the Sabbath. And as we move into verse 29, it is still the Sabbath. It's still the Sabbath day when he enters the house of Simon and Andrew. Again, we see it's both their homes. We mentioned this last week. It's a family home. Simon and Andrew are living there. Simon's living there with his mother-in-law, which to get a mother-in-law, you need a wife. And so he has a family. They enter that house with James and John. And the shocking thing for us, knowing chapter 3, is that nothing's mentioned about the Sabbath work. Mark just kind of moves right through and assumes that we see and understand that As Jesus works and heals on the Sabbath, as he does things on the Sabbath, he is working and healing when only God was allowed to work and heal. He's just kind of working into the fact that he hasn't brought it up and made it an issue that we should see that when God works, Jesus works. When Jesus works, God works. That whenever Jesus is doing things on the Sabbath, he is not breaking Sabbath code because he is God. And then he sees, now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever and immediately they told him, about her. A fever, we're not told the the exact nature of the fever, what it was like. Um, Could have just been a normal fever. In rabbinic tradition, um, 
some saw fevers as evidence of divine judgment or demon possession. There's a little bit of that. We get a little bit of that if we hop over to Luke's gospel. In chapter 4, the terminology that Luke's, Luke uses is that Jesus casts out the fever, which that phrase is typically used of casting out demons. So there, we might get a little bit of that rabbinic theology worked in there. It's interesting that right off the bat, these disciples, and we see over and over and over again as we work through the gospels, the disciples do not fully understand who Jesus is. And yet, faced with the reality of who Jesus is, they still get quite a lot. Why do they tell him about her? They immediately told him about her. Presumably, because they expected Jesus to do something about it. They expected that Jesus could do something about it. And regardless of what's going on in terms of the fever, what we do see in verse 31, again, we're not told the conversation. We're not given all the little details But we're told that he came up and took her by the hand and lifted her up and the fever left her. And she began to serve them. The fever is driven out by his touch. Before we saw the evil spirits being driven out by his word and the authority of his word, now we see that illness, sickness, fevers are driven out merely by his touch, the authority of Jesus' touch. And Mark's point is not about the nature of the fever, but about the all-sufficiency of Jesus to heal What does it matter about what kind of fever it is? It could have been a demon-possessed fever. It could have been a divine judgment fever. We're we're not told. It could have been just a regular old fever because people get sick. And yet, regardless of what kind of fever it is, Jesus touches her and she is healed. Even if the rabbinic interpretation is right, that is to say, even if it were divine judgment, What is Jesus doing by touching her and healing her and removing divine judgment? We are seeing Jesus doing that only something only God could do. God imposes divine judgment on whoever he wills. In whatever format, in whatever way, in whatever time. And only God can remove that. And yet Jesus here seems to remove, if it is divine judgment, Jesus removes that. And if it's demon possession, what we see is again the advancement of the kingdom of God over against the kingdom of Satan. What we see is Jesus, regardless of how you want to interpret what this fever is, Jesus is more powerful than whatever this fever is. Jesus is more powerful than whatever it represents. And she gets up and begins to serve them. That is, she she is immediately healed, she recognizes what Jesus does, and her immediate reaction is to serve Jesus and the others. We sometimes slip into this mentality that we have been saved and, and God owes us some things. That, yes, God, we appreciate the salvation you've given us, but can you give us a little bit more? And her reaction was not to see if Jesus could give her a little bit more. Her immediate reaction was just to serve Jesus. What does that look like in our lives? It'll be vast and different. But she was healed to serve, and we have been saved to serve. And in what ways are we seeking to serve Jesus, to serve the kingdom of God? Because, precisely because of what he has done for us. Verse 32, that evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. So now they've seen that Jesus can drive out evil spirits. They saw that in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And then they've seen and heard that Jesus can heal fevers, whatever that is. And the crowds come after the Sabbath. So the disciples and Jesus, they've 
seeing what Jesus does on the Sabbath, they go to Simon and Andrew's house and they ask Jesus to do something on the Sabbath. But the crowds, they don't quite understand what's going on. That evening at sundown, Sabbath ran from our Friday night, Friday evening at sundown, to Saturday evening at sundown. That was the whole Sabbath day. So as soon as the sun went down Saturday night, Sabbath was done. Sabbath was over. Jews ran their days I don't want to say backwards, that sounds rude, but they ran, they ran their days not according to when the sun comes up, but according to when the sun went down. So they come after the Sabbath, and they come to see the miracle worker. Of course, everyone wants to see him. Everyone wants to get close to meet him. But the distinctions are made in this verse and in the following verses between physical and spiritual healing. That is, all who were sick with various diseases as well as spiritual diseases being oppressed by demons, oppressed, over, overburdened, felt the weight of this possession on top of them. And I think Mark brings out this distinction, not just as like a, a general, oh yeah, there was somebody who had a broken leg, there was somebody who had a cough, and oh yeah, there was a guy that walked in and he was possessed by a demon. It's not like he's just naming all the different things that came in. Mark is specifically pointing out that Jesus is sovereign over every area of life. That regardless of who comes to him with whatever sickness they may have, physical or spiritual, Jesus is sovereign and all-sufficient to heal any and every disease, physical or spiritual. And the whole city gathered gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because he knew him. Of course, everybody wants to crowd in and see this guy, wouldn't you? I mean, if we're being honest, if we've heard that something happens, and I think that's where... Though it is uh, wrong, heretical, and uh, in many ways um, just an outright travesty that, you know, those TV evangelist healing guys where they get people to pay money so that you can have this thing healed of you, that the thing that you've had for 30 years, you come and you, you give a donation of $150 and if your name is picked out of the hat, then maybe you will be healed. And they do that whole thing where they're, oh yes, yeah, I think somebody whose name starts with a J and you've got something wrong with your right side. I mean left side, sorry, I had that backwards. And they just start doing this whole thing. But why do people do that? Why do people go there? Why is that place packed? Because people want to be healed. These people want to be healed and they pack the door. They pack the house. They get there because they desperately will turn to anything, anyone who could heal them. And Jesus has compassion on all who come to him. All of them. It says many, but that phrasing is not just like Jesus picked out most of them. Everyone who came Everyone who came to him, nobody was turned away. Even though they don't fully understand and appreciate his display of power. They don't fully grasp what Jesus is doing and who he is and what he's come to do completely. They don't get all of that. And, that, and yet Jesus sees these people gathering at the door and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he silences them. He silences the demons and we're told because they knew him. Again, going back to what we mentioned last week, it's not because they knew him in a salvific sense. It's not because they understood exactly what Jesus came to do. It's not a profession of faith when they say, we know who you are. He silences the demons because they knew him, because Jesus does not want, on the basis of the word of these unclean spirits, these these demons, he does not want people to begin to equate the Messiah, the Holy One of God, with merely a miracle worker. 
everyone shows up and Jesus has compassion on everyone who comes to his door and he heals many. That is to say, there's nobody that shows up and Jesus goes, sorry, I can't deal with that one. I don't know how to or I don't have the power. I don't have the authority. Jesus has the power and authority and he has compassion on all that come to him and yet he knows the tendency of the human heart where we see one thing and we latch on to it and we don't see the full picture. I shouldn't say the tendency of every human heart. That's my tendency. Do you get tunnel vision? Anybody else willing to admit that you get some tunnel vision sometimes? You just focus in on one thing and you lose the big picture? Jesus silences the demons and he doesn't just say, please be quiet, don't tell anybody. He says, you shall not speak and they cannot speak because his work as the Messiah is so much bigger than healing a fever. It is not less than that, but it is so much more than that. And so we move on into verse 35. Jesus has just healed a whole bunch of people that would have gone well into the night. They came after sundown. It's dark when they get there. Jesus heals who knows how many. We're told many. We're told that the whole city shows up again, not saying that every single person in the city showed up, but that the whole city heard and that everyone who was sick and needing of help came to Jesus and Jesus healed every single one of them. That would have taken a while, even just to get people in and out of the door. Now, it's not like it took a process where Jesus took half an hour with each of them. We're told he just had to touch Simon Peter's mother-in-law and she got up and was healed. It's not like the process for Jesus took a long time, but there were many, many people. And rising very early in the morning, this is verse 35, while it was still dark. So Jesus went to bed when it was dark and he got up when it was dark and he went out. He departed and went out to a desolate place and there he prayed. That term desolate place, that's the phrase that Mark's already used earlier in chapter one when he's described the wilderness. When he's talked about the temptation, Jesus went out into the wilderness. He was driven out by the spirit to be tempted in the wilderness. The wilderness is where Jesus stood. The wilderness is where John preached. The wilderness is where John baptized. The wilderness was where it became evident that God was at work and the kingdom of God was going to advance. And Jesus goes into the wilderness very early in the morning to fellowship with the Father alone. Just to pray. Just to spend time with his Father. And I know it's been said that, well, there's two angles to why we don't get up early and why we don't spend more time in prayer. Well, we can, we can pray at any time. We could, we could pray right now. We could pray when you go home. You can pray when you go to bed. You can pray when you can get up. And that was certainly true of Jesus. So why does he get up very early in the morning? I think he does it because there's no other human distraction around. Nobody else around. Nobody to bother him. Nobody to bug him. Not because he was going to be angry or frustrated, but because he knew that if somebody came to him with a need, he would have compassion and he would work. But he knew that in order for him to work, because he's going to go out and he's going to preach in all the synagogues and he's going to cast out demons and he's going to heal more people, what he needs right at the start is fellowship with the Father. That fellowship with the Father takes priority over sleep. That's hard, isn't it? Like, I don't do that. <laughs> I should probably be more ashamed at that statement than I am, but I don't do that. I like sleeping in, don't we all? I think we should see the example of Christ and the rebuke that we will get later in the gospel where the disciples couldn't stay awake while Jesus prayed. 
We rely on sleep for our energy. We rely on sleep for rest and comfort and what we see continually over and over again. This being actually the first of only three times in Mark's gospel that he will mention Jesus praying. Right at the beginning, right in the middle, and then right at the end. Jesus' ministry, according to Mark, is not Jesus praying all the time, but praying at key moments. And he seeks to find time by himself with the Father. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. These guys, these guys, you got to love Simon, you got to love Peter, you got to love these disciples. They're new to this business, they're new to this whole following Jesus and discipleship thing. And they have no idea what they've just interrupted. Not a clue that they have just interrupted God the Son's communion with God the Father. The magnitude of that interruption. If we think of our Trinitarian theology and what it means for God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit to have always been in perfect communion from eternity past, and what that meant for God the Son to take on human flesh, become incarnate, to come, be born as a baby, and to walk this earth, taking on full humanity for your sake and for mine, so that he might die on the cross, take our sins upon himself, and bear the full weight of God's wrath. We we don't fully understand what does that communion look like? What did that eternal, always perfect, loving communion look like? We got a piece of it when Jesus went out to a desolate place to spend time with the Father. And these guys show up and they interrupt. <laughs> they go looking for Jesus and they break up their communion, his communion with his Father. And they're searching for him for their own reasons. This is probably what makes it the worst, is that they're coming to Jesus for their own reasons, not for the reasons for which Jesus came. They're not coming to Jesus to get Jesus to do the things that he came to do. They're coming to Jesus because they've got their own ideas and their own thoughts. They're seeking or looking for Jesus to determine and control. That term, that phrase, seeking. They were seeking Jesus. They were looking for him. They searched for him. That phrase is going to be used elsewhere in Mark and elsewhere um, in the other Gospels. And it's a phrase that's used, people are searching for so that they might control, dominate, determine the course of action. It'll be used when the um, Judas and the guards are searching for Jesus so that they might capture him and take him captive. That phrase is used commonly in that sense. And what we get here is these guys searching for Jesus and after finding him, they're saying, everyone is looking for you. Of course, everyone's looking for him, but they're looking for him for their own reasons. Why are they looking for him? Jesus, you had a great run last night. You healed 70 people. Well, there's another 60 more waiting for you at the door. We got up this morning and you were gone. Everyone's looking for you. Get over here. You're famous, man. Let's go. What are you doing out here in the middle of nowhere? Come to the people. Come to the crowds. Isn't that what you said? We're going to be around people fishing for men. Let's go. They don't get it. They don't understand they don't quite see. They're looking for Jesus to determine and control, not to submit and follow. That is their enthusiasm and the crowd's enthusiasm. This is something that will be pointed out, not just by Mark, but in the other Gospels as well, that the enthusiasm of the crowds is not to be equated with faith, not to be equated with they understand and believe who Jesus is. They just see a glimpse. They just see a part, and they really like that part, and that's why they search for Jesus but it's not because they fully understand who he is. And so I think it's important at this point we step back and we go, do we search for Jesus for the wrong reasons? Do we seek God for selfish reasons? 
Do we seek God because we want to feel better? Do we seek God because we want emotional stability? Do we seek God because of some personal, um, physical or spiritual or mental or emotional stability that we want? All of those are true when we come to Jesus, aren't they? We do have emotional and mental and spiritual stability because our rock is solid, because our anchor holds within the veil. That is true. And yet, what's the reason? Jesus seems to answer with a weird non-answer. Everyone's looking for you. And Jesus doesn't say, you guys are, one, rude, you just interrupted. Two, you don't really get it. He doesn't say that. Verse 38, he says, and he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Jesus is full of compassion on all who come to him, but he will not be manipulated. You cannot put Jesus in a box and say, Jesus, I know you can do some pretty neat things, and I want you to do these things specifically. Jesus comes, and when he comes in his full power and the full display of his authority, bringing the full kingdom of God, he will come and he will do some miraculous things, and yet you cannot try to manipulate him. You cannot say, Jesus, you have to do this, or you have to do that, or you can only do this and not that. And Jesus says, let's go out to other towns. I have to preach. That's why I've come. Are we coming to Jesus to hear his word, to hear what he says, or are we coming to Jesus because he can do some neat tricks? I came out specifically so I could preach. And he goes throughout all Galilee, the whole region, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Mark throws in preaching in their synagogues, partly because Jesus was actually preaching in the synagogues. That's where he would go. That's where the word of God was. That's where the Old Testament was, the Torah. That's where he would go to read from and then exposit and teach from God's word. And yet, the synagogue and the kingdom advancing in the synagogue, there's more symbolic stuff in there and we don't have time to get into right now, but what we see is that by Jesus going to the synagogues and teaching the Jews, the kingdom of God is advancing. Jesus is advancing the kingdom, bringing God's mission to completion through God's people. There's a massive theme throughout the Old Testament. God is working in and amongst and through and with his people. Then we see Jesus picking up that mission and continuing the mission in the midst of God's people. God's work with his people is not done. He continues to go out and work. And then at the end of verse 39, we're left with the question, but what about the outsider? It's great that he's working within the Jews, working within his people. But again, we go back to our first message in Mark. Mark is writing to, in all likelihood, Roman believers, Gentile believers, people who were not born into the nation of Israel. They're not born into the people of God. They were not marked by circumcision. They were not marked by anything other than we have heard the word of God preached. We have heard about this one called Jesus, and we have trusted and believed in him for the salvation of our souls. And Mark picks up right here with that tendency, that thought, but what about us? What about those of us who were not in the synagogue? What about those of us who were not a part of that? We're refused access to the synagogue. So he picks up in verse 40, and a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. Lepers were outsiders. Lepers were people that were not welcome. There's some 
I read something this past week, a couple of commentators were saying that apparently there was within the synagogues for a Jew who had leprosy, there was an allowance where a leper could come to the synagogue and hear the teaching, but there had to be a barrier put up. There had to be something put up, some physical barrier put up so that there was, you know, something going right down the middle. You're the lepers and you're the clean, unclean, something like that. But on par... Lepers were supposed to stay in isolation. They were supposed to stay away. They were supposed to be the ones that stayed out in the wilderness, in exile, far away from the city. And if they came anywhere near, they had to yell out and say, unclean, unclean, unclean. They had to declare themselves as they walked in that people knew that they were unclean. And the leper does exactly what he's not supposed to do. He breaks every social protocol in coming to Jesus They weren't supposed to approach anyone, let alone a teacher of the law, let alone a a rabbi, let alone somebody with spiritual significance and importance. You don't don't approach them. You don't come near to them. And he he doesn't say unclean, unclean, unclean. We're not told any of that. We're just told that he comes to Jesus. And he asks Jesus to do what only God could do. If we go back to Leviticus, we go back to the chapters on leprosy, and there's many things that could be categorized as leprosy. But notice the word in verse 40. If you will, you can make me clean. Not you can heal me. Jesus healed many with various diseases and he healed those who had uh, unclean spirits and were demon possessed. But this phrasing is different. The, the phrasing of cleanliness, clean and unclean, that goes all the way back to the Levitical law. And what, what this leper is asking Jesus to do is to do something that only God could do. That is, all of those laws and rules in the Levitical um, documents, all of those rules that they had to follow when it came to leprosy, they could not make themselves clean. There was the proper order and proper steps to be taken to find out if you were clean. And the priests would declare you clean if they found you to be clean, but you couldn't make yourself clean. There was nothing you could do. They basically had to wait it out. They had to wait and see if what they had was bad enough to be declared a leper. They had to wait and see that if God was going to heal them, if he did it during that time of isolation. And this leper asking Jesus to do this may not shock us right away, but if we've got that Old Testament context, what is this guy doing? What does he see? What does he understand? We're not quite sure, but he knows that what he needs is not just to no longer have itchy skin or to make sure that in many leprous cases that they're not losing fingers or toes, that they're not, things aren't falling off because of the disease. He knows he needs to be clean. And Jesus Verse 41, moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. Jesus has compassion on this leper instead of contempt, which is what normally came along with a leper approaching people. They had contempt for lepers. Why would you come and make me unclean? Don't you realize that by doing this, I have to do a certain number of things according to the Levitical law. You've messed up my life by coming close to me. Jesus does not have contempt, he has compassion. And Jesus actually, again, going against all protocol and going against everything that everyone else had ever done in the history of encountering a leper, he reaches out instead of recoils. He doesn't step back, he steps forward. He reaches out to this guy who has no other hope and he touches him 
And Jesus' touch, again, what we saw earlier with Simon's mother-in-law, Jesus' touch heals him. And Jesus' touch does more than that. It does more than simply remove the leprosy. We're told that his, that his touch actually makes him clean. That it's not just removing and healing. It's actually the touch of Jesus does what only God's touch could do. It makes him clean. Many people have stated for the first time ever in the history of ever, this was in reverse. Normally when an unclean touched a clean, both became unclean. And yet in this case, when Jesus is on the scene, his cleanliness, his cleanness, his power, his authority, his godness can't be stained by sin. Can't be stained by leprosy. It can't be stained by the power of the law. It can't be stained by anything. And for the first time in ever, for the first time in ever in history, a clean person doesn't touch an unclean person, and they both become clean. That's astounding. I mean, we don't we don't we don't fully appreciate that or understand that because we're not soaked in the the Levitical law. And yet, this would have shocked everybody. This would have been astounding. And Jesus says, because the natural thing would be, we need, to, we need more of this. Verse 43, and Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. Say nothing. Why? Jesus will do this over and over again because his time had not yet come. And the time is not yet come until the cross is right before him. That is the time for which he came. That is the time that he is waiting for, the cross. And his messianic authority and his messianic mission can only be understood properly in light of the cross. So silence up until that point because we don't want confusion. We don't want misunderstanding. We don't want people to misunderstand Jesus' messianic identity. He does a lot. He is a lot, and he's far more than you can understand, but we have to wait till we get to the cross till we can fully appreciate and understand who Jesus is. So he says, say nothing. And he tells him, follow the Levitical protocol so that they, that is the priests, will have evidence, proof that God is at work. Only God could make clean, and yet it was the priests who declared clean. The priests declared you clean, but only God could actually do it. The priests had no power within themselves to actually make anybody clean, and yet they were the ones, they were the voice of God to the people at that time. This person is clean, but only God could do that. And Jesus tells this, this man, this former leper, to go to the priests, offer your cleansing, offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded. Continue with what you're supposed to do. Why? For a proof to them, so that the priests, the ones there, would see evidence that God was at work. That was what they did. By declaring somebody clean, according to the Levitical protocols, they were declaring evidence that God made this person clean. God did something that we couldn't do. God overruled their uncleanliness and made them clean again. We are merely the mouthpieces of telling you, according to what he's given us, that they're clean. And now... Jesus says, go to them, show them by, by your cleanliness. Do everything you're supposed to do. Why? So that they will have evidence that God is still at work. That God continues to work in his people. That God has not forgotten his people. And that in this case, that God has not forgotten about the outsider. The people who have been cast off, set aside by their society. 
Jesus' miracles, and we talk about miracles in this sense, as being unnatural, miraculous being, well, that was something that we, we couldn't have done or couldn't expect. And yet in the greatest sense, Jesus' miracles aren't unnatural. Sickness is unnatural. Death is unnatural. Leprosy is unnatural. Demon possession is unnatural. And what Jesus is doing is restoring humanity to its most natural state. He's removing all the imperfection. He's removing the impurities. He's removing the unnatural. He's removing the intrusions. He's restoring. He's bringing back. He's healing. Verse 45 says, But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. The crowds come to him again and again and again, but they miss the point. They miss the true purpose of his ministry. They miss seeing who Jesus truly is. And the ironic thing about verse 45 is, in this whole account, and Mark likes irony. We'll see this as we work through Mark. Mark likes to give the ironic twist And the irony here is that by going out and telling everyone, talking freely about it, he has just imposed the burden that he used to have onto Jesus. This leper used to be able, couldn't go anywhere. He couldn't actually freely go into any town. He couldn't openly go where he wanted. And now we're told that Jesus can no longer openly enter a town. The burden has been reversed. Jesus has taken his burden upon himself. Not in the exact same way. There's obviously some, some differences here. But at the same time, we see the burden reversal. The burden that used to rest on this leper has now been put on Jesus. There's probably so much more that could be said about that. But isn't that true of what it means to understand the gospel? Isn't that the gospel itself? Our burdens being removed from us and put on Jesus? I mean, that's... That's the glorious thing that we preach to everyone out there. You are weighed down. You are heavy laden. More people are feeling that now more than ever. The weight, the burden, emotional, mental, spiritual, in many cases physical as well. You feel that burden. And the hope of the gospel is Jesus will take that burden away. Will you go to him? Will you kneel down in front of him, King of kings and Lord of lords, Because if you do, he will reach out and he will touch you. He will remove that burden. He will make you clean. The big question, I think, coming out of that is, why doesn't Jesus do that now? Why am I sick now? Why do I hurt now? Jack, how many many things have you had replaced? How many surgeries have you had? Why does Jesus not heal now? Why doesn't he make me better now? Why do I still feel emotionally and mentally down? Why do I still feel some burdens? Why don't I feel perfect right now? I think that's because as these people were prone to misunderstand the purpose of Jesus, we would be too. Because Jesus has promised to take away our burdens, physical and spiritual, and he has promised to do that in the end. Why doesn't he do it now so we keep trusting on him? But we have that promise that one day, Jack, you're going to have a better body, brother. (laughs) That Martin McDonald, he's going to have a better body glorified body that as we read in Philippians by the power that Jesus has he will raise resurrect restore and give us a body just like his glorious and new we may be frustrated that it doesn't happen now 
that we still feel some burdens now, and yet we hold on to the promise, the hope, the truth, that one day all of this will be gone when he comes back. Either when we go to glory, or when he comes back with trumpets blasting and who knows what else. You can interpret all that stuff in different ways, but when he comes back, it will be a glorious return, and you and I will be made perfect. Outcasts though we were, we will be made perfect in the presence of our Savior. I'm going to ask our musicians to come forward, and we will conclude our morning with worship and song.